This podcast episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleep is super important to me. In the last few years, I've come to conclude it is the end-all, be-all, that all good things, good mood, good performance, good everything seem to stem from good sleep. So I've tried a lot to optimize it. I've tried pills and potions, all sorts of different mattresses, you name it. And for the last few years, I've been sleeping on a Helix Midnight Luxe mattress. I also have one in the guest bedroom, and feedback from friends has always been fantastic. It's something that they comment on. Helix Sleep has a quiz, takes about two minutes to complete, that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. With Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and every body. That is your body, also your taste. So let's say you sleep on your side and like a super soft bed. No problem. Or if you're a back sleeper who likes a mattress that's as firm as a rock, they've got a mattress for you too. Helix was selected as the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ Magazine, Wired, Apartment Therapy, and many others. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up from you if you don't love it. And now, my dear listeners, Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash Tim. These are not cheap pillows either, so getting two for free is an upgraded deal. So that's up to $200 off and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash Tim. That's helix H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim for up to $200 off. So check it out one more time. Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is in the time. What if I did the I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton.
Greetings, friends. This is a rare preface to the intro. So there is a separate intro, but after recording this episode, which I was very happy with, I wanted to add a number of additional notes. First, IFS is an incredible system, and it really goes far beyond any type of trauma. So it applies to, I would say, each and every one of us. It will help you work with your inner critic. It will help you to befriend inner voices, not in the pathological sense. And at one point in this episode, I do a live demo as the patient with Richard of IFS. So that is a real life, real subject matter demo. And uh, be patient. This is a dense episode at points, and you may find yourself wondering what the hell are these two talking about? Be patient. Just sit with it for a minute or two, and it'll get back to terra firma, and you will have your bearings. And you can think of IFS also, which has been very helpful to me personally. And I've seen some incredible, I mean, I would say almost miraculous before and afters in video of therapeutic sessions can be compared to perhaps GTD, getting things done. So getting things done by David Allen, incredible system, David's been on the podcast, is excellent for getting rid of all the stuff, right? The work, death by a thousand paper cuts and open loops and things floating around in different systems, things that aren't captured, getting all that stuff, which a lot of people would think of in a work capacity into some kind of flow and system so you can work with it and give yourself some peace of mind. Imagine if you could do that, if you had a system for doing that for your emotions, for the flare-ups of energy of anger, of sadness, of self-flagellation, if you had some kind of system that allowed you to contend with all of that stuff. IFS is one such system. And also, this episode is the first time that I talk openly, and I did not plan on this, about everything that has happened since I published my episode on childhood abuse. So there you have the preface to the intro, and now to the intro. But before I get there, I can't help but read one quote, which applies to all of this episode. It's a quote from Jack Kornfield. If your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. And with that, to the intro we go. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. My guest today I've wanted to have on for years now, Richard Schwartz. He began his career as a family therapist and an academic at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is now on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. But it was at the University of Illinois at Chicago where he discovered that family therapy alone did not achieve full symptom relief. And in asking patients why, he learned that they were plagued by what they called parts. And we'll get into what that means. These patients became his teachers as they described how their parts formed networks of inner relationships that resembled the families he had been working with. He also found that as they focused on and thereby separated from their parts, they could shift into a state characterized by qualities like curiosity, calm, confidence, and compassion. He called that inner essence the self and was amazed to find it even in severely diagnosed and traumatized patients. From these explorations, the internal family systems, otherwise known as IFS, model was born in the early 1980s. IFS is now evidence-based and has become a widely used form of psychotherapy, particularly with trauma. It provides a non-pathologizing, optimistic, and empowering perspective in a practical and effective set of techniques for working with individuals, couples, families, and more recently, corporations and classrooms. And I want to add just a little bit more context, which Richard may or may not disabuse me of. But one way to think about this is as a toolkit for reconciling parts of yourself that may have 
conflict amongst them or difficulties amongst them, parts of yourself that you've disavowed. And therefore, it is not limited to heavily traumatized patients in a psychotherapeutic context. So what we're going to be talking about in this episode, I think, applies to just about everyone. I'm going to hedge by not saying everyone, although I if I'm being honest, think everyone in many, many, many different contexts. So with all of that preamble said, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. I'm honored by those words and also uh, just so excited to be with you. I've been a fan and particularly a fan of the session you did several ago where you were so disclosive about your own history. Just uh, thought that was amazingly courageous and a service to all, to everybody. Appreciate you saying that, and it's it's been one hell of a journey, <laughs> both since the podcast and leading up to it. I was wondering what what it's been like and what uh, kind of feedback you've gotten. Well, let's let's talk about it. I haven't spoken publicly about the after effects or the consequences, positive and unintended. I will say that for those people who who don't know what we're referring to, I put out an episode of this podcast in September. You can find it at tim.blog forward slash trauma, which disclosed history of sexual abuse. So uh, suffering at the hands of an abuser from ages two to four at a babysitter's house and talked about my healing journey subsequent to that my ups and downs, my battles with depression, and all sorts of other things in conversation with a close friend of mine, Debbie Millman, who also is a survivor of sexual abuse, although we both take some issue with that word survivor. But nonetheless, putting that aside, that was the episode. And I expected, since it was, in some respects, many years in the making, I anticipated putting it into book form after my parents passed away. So it was always inside my head, 15 or 20 years in the future, something I would do. And as soon as it was published, my response to it on some level was that of feeling like I was in a surreal alternate reality because it it was now current tense or in some sense past tense, right? I published this thing that I thought wasn't going to ever see the light of day or be shared with the public for 15 to 20 years. And it was bizarre. I had girded myself for a tsunami of emotions and difficulty and maybe attacks and so on. I set rules with my team and policies so that I could stay entirely off of social media. We turned off comments on certain types of posts really to stem the flow. And the first two days, I had cleared my entire calendar for that week to have space. The first two days were very tranquil. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if that's because I was genuinely at peace, if there was some type of shock. I I couldn't tell you. I don't claim to have that level of self-awareness. But it was very, very calm. And then having so much space for the rest of the week was very challenging. I typically run pretty hot in the sense that I like traveling in sixth gear and doing a lot. So having that much time to ruminate or to experience consciousness uncluttered by activity, uh, in retrospect, maybe was a, a little harder on me than filling my calendar, if you can imagine 
that yeah. I, I remember having Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on the podcast, and he said, you know, I, to avoid depression after certain points, he just made his calendar very busy, and he said he would recommend it to anyone. And I did the opposite, and it was mm-hmm. very challenging. So I had a lot of, just as an example, and I haven't spoken to anybody publicly, but here we are, and I'm pretty well caffeinated, so I'll try to cut short my <laughs> uh, my monologue here in a second. But I had a lot of anger and rage come up, but the the way in which it came up was very surprising to me. I had this flood. I remember it was on the Wednesday after this podcast came out on Monday. This flood of memories of past slights, many of them really trivial, <laughs> just mm-hmm. like emails I didn't like or rejections that hurt my feelings or mm-hmm. fill in the blank. And I was so pissed off all day on Wednesday. And I didn't try to fix it. I didn't worry about it, but I, I thought it was really quite surprising that this anger was coming to the surface, but it wasn't specific to any of the abuse. It was in just dozens of kind of trite or in inconsequential slights from my past. And I was just pissed off all day long. And then when the podcast really hit escape velocity in the sense that it, it was widely shared enough that a lot of my friends had heard it, mm-hmm. that's when things got a little harder because I would say of my very close male friends, and I don't have that many close friends by design. Mm-hmm. I, I let's, just, let's just arbitrarily say 20. I would say seven or eight of them reached out to me to confess that they had been sexually abused and never told anyone. Wow. And some of them sent me voice memos, really kind of tear-jerking, heart-shredding audio. And I mean, just thinking about it, I'm like, welling up with tears a bit because it was fucking emotionally difficult for them and also very challenging for me to act as a sort of recipient or support. And I'm glad they reached out. I'm really glad they reached out. I expected there would be a lot of this. So we received tons of emails, tons of blog comments, tons of handwritten letters from people describing their experiences. But that was really very difficult. And to wrap up, since uh, this is <laughs> interview intended to ask you questions, <laughs> right. uh, I, I'm very, very, very proud of it. And I'm not proud often. That's something I have always had difficulty with. Uh, I, I don't accept praise well uh, or let it land well. I'm really proud of it. And it did a lot of good. And it was, uh, it was tough, but not in the ways that I had anticipated. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you can be proud of it because uh, I agree. I think it it really served us to have some of your stature be that open about it and, uh, yeah, and live to see the light of day, like you said. Let's talk more about living to see the light of day because you have worked in many places with many people and some of those people perhaps have resigned to a life of darkness or a life that is shadowed by certain experiences, trauma, depression, suicidal ideation, etc. 
Could you, and I don't know if this name is going to ring a bell because I'm not sure if you anonymized it or somebody else did, but there's a great piece in Medium inside the revolutionary treatment that could change psychotherapy forever. And in it, I read about the story of Roxanne Mm -hmm. uh, and how that was part of developing IFS. Could you share that story, please? This was in the early 1980s, and I was a fresh graduate of a PhD program in marital and family therapy, and I was trying to prove that family therapy was the, the thing, was found the holy grail. And so I did an outcome study with a bunch of bulimic clients, which was a syndrome that was new on the scene at the time. And she was one of them. And as I was trying to do this family therapy with all these clients and and succeeded in actually reorganizing the families the way the book said to, they kept binging and purging. (laughs) They didn't realize they'd been cured. And so out of frustration, I began asking why, and they started talking this language of parts, which was sort of bizarre to me. I thought maybe they were sicker than I thought because they were talking about these, what they called parts of them that could take over and make them do things they didn't want to do and, and had a lot of autonomy inside. And, and they we're talking about them as if they were sort of full-range personalities. And so I, after I got over my fear about it, I got curious and I started to try and get my clients to relate differently. So they would say something like, something bad happens in my life and this critic attacks me inside, calls me all kinds of brutal names. And that brings up another part of me that feels totally worthless and alone and empty and desperate. And that feeling is so dreadful that to the rescue comes the binge to take me away from all that. But that brings back the critics. So, so I'm hearing about these interactions among different seeming to be entities inside of them. And as a family therapist, that was intriguing because that's what I studied, these interactions among family members. And I began to explore trying to change some of this, but I was assuming that these parts were what they seemed to be, which is what the field sort of still assumes, that the critic is just a uh, critical parental voice that they internalized, and the binge is an out-of-control impulse. And so from that frame of understanding it, you're limited what you can have your clients do. So I was getting my clients to stand up to the critic and don't take it and control the binge. And they were getting worse, but I didn't know what else to do when I didn't have, I was like the man in a hole with a shovel, you know, you just dig deeper. So until this client who, in addition to being eating disordered, also cut herself on her wrists. And uh, I knew had a bit of a sex abuse history. I didn't know the extent of it. And so I began to try and work with that cutting part in the way I had with these others. And so I would get her to have a dialogue with it in which she would try to tell it. It couldn't do this to her anymore. You know, that was done. No more of this. And I was sort of saying that to the part too. And after a couple hours of badgering it that way, it finally, in her head, agreed to not cut her that week. And then I opened the door to the next session, and she has a big gash down the side of her face. And I just collapsed emotionally inside when I saw that. And I spontaneously said, 
I give up. I can't beat you with this. And she said, the part said, I don't really want to beat you. And that was a turning point because I shifted out of that controlling, coercive place to just being curious. And I said, so why do you do this to her? And I had her ask that. And the part said, sort of told the story of how when she was being sexually abused, it had to get her out of her body and contain the rage that would get her more abuse. And I shifted again. Now I don't see it as just, uh, you know, I had appreciation for it, but it was like a hero in her life. It, it really saved her during those abuse scenes. And as I listened to it more, it sounded like it was still living back in that time, like it still thought she was five years old, and it still had to protect her in this way. And that it carried these extreme beliefs and emotions that we call burdens about the world, about her, about how uh, dangerous everything was, that drove it. These extreme beliefs and emotions were like a virus, it seemed, like the coronavirus that drove the way it operated. And so as I got all that, I started to think, maybe these parts aren't what they seem. Maybe they are like kids in a family, a dysfunctional family where they're forced out of their naturally valuable states to be in roles to protect the family or because of the dynamics of the family that, that aren't who they are and, and don't serve them, but they think are necessary. And in exploring that, it turns out that's true, that, first of all, we all have these things I'm calling parts, that they called parts, that, from my point of view, aren't the product of trauma which has been the way it's been viewed, you know, multiple personality disorders, the unitary brain got shattered by the trauma. Well, for me, it's the natural state of the mind to be multiple, to be to have these parts, and they're all valuable. We wouldn't be born with anything that wasn't valuable, and, and they come into our life from birth with us. And then trauma and attachment injuries and things like that force them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that they don't like, but they think are absolutely necessary to keep us safe, and then can become symptoms and problems. But they also, if they are listened to and actually loved ultimately by our clients and ourselves, will transform. So anyway, I I got rolling on this, but... Um. <laughs> well, that's why we have a long form podcast. Right. You can get rolling. And I just want to say for people who are trying to envision what this might look like, and uh, you and I will will attempt to do a, a live demo of this using me as a guinea pig a bit later in this conversation. But I recall the first time that I saw IFS in action. And I will say that the and I'm sure you've heard this before, but the the internal family systems brand name, so to speak, initially led me to have a bit of a knee-jerk aversion because I assumed that I would have to... I, I, I took it very literally. I assumed, although I didn't read the internal, I wasn't quite sure what that referred to, that I would have to sit down with my mom and my dad and my brother and do family therapy of some type. And I was like, I'm out. I don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> but, but when I saw IFS in action for the first time, it was when I was going through the MAPS MDMA-assisted psychotherapy training program as an auditor. I'm not in any way licensed as a psychotherapist or psychologist or otherwise. 
But as an auditor, I wanted to experience the program and was able to see session footage of people with severe PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, in many cases, vets, who certainly with the amplification and assistance of MDMA, but nonetheless, in in this particular case, under the care of Michael and Annie Midhofer, going through IFS to see where someone could start with their, say, relationship or thoughts, perspective on rage and where they would end up was truly mind-blowing. I mean, to watch it in video form was so impactful. Uh, And I want to highlight one aspect of that that really struck a chord with me on a whole lot of levels. And I'm, I'm going to do this by referring back to this medium piece. And I'll, I'll link to this medium piece in the show notes for people at tim.blog slash podcast if you want to read this as well. But I'm going to read a paragraph and then I'm going to dive into one particular aspect of it. So here we go. Frank Anderson, a former clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School, was working as a staff psychiatrist at Bessel van der Kolk's renowned trauma center in Brookline, Massachusetts, when he first encountered Schwartz and IFS. For people who don't know the name Bessel van der Kolk, he's the author of a book called The Body Keeps the Score, uh, which is a bit of a, a classic in, in this world. All right, so back to Frank Anderson. First encountered Schwartz and IFS, it flipped his world upside down. Quote, I'd been working with severe trauma for a long time at the trauma center, and I was one of the many people who go, oh, wow, Anderson recalls. Within the mental health world, it's a huge paradigm shift. IFS is very non-pathologizing. Every part, every symptom has a positive intention. That kind of blows therapists away. What do you mean shooting heroin has a positive intention? What do you mean cutting yourself or binging has a positive intention? End quote. So the non-pathologizing nature of IFS is, is what I want to hone in on because you very often hear, if, and this is speaking as a layperson, if you start kind of wading through the books and literature and even in-person conversations in psychiatry, you very often hear the term maladaptive, right? This behavior is maladaptive. What this person's doing is maladaptive, meaning it's some kind of like perversion of an adaptation that doesn't fit, uh, at least the way that I hear it. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding and the way that I've been able to finally find some compassion for myself and parts of myself is to recognize that the things that we view in ourselves as totally fucked up, totally self-destructive, totally fill-in-the-blank pejorative term, very often are not maladaptive. They are perfectly adaptive. They've just outlived their usefulness or they've, they've kind of expired, but they still remain, if that makes any sense. And so the, the non-pathologizing and any piece of what I just said, I'd love to hear you respond to. Well, you said it really well, um, and that it's been a tough sell in my field, but that is what I found back with that client and subsequently with thousands of clients, not just myself, but all the people using this around the world, are finding that these things we thought were symptoms are maladaptive in the sense that in our current context, they may not be needed, but they were definitely needed. They were like heroes, like I was saying back when we were being hurt, and they get stuck back there. So again, I'm a family therapist, so I'm trying to understand the context of all kinds of both external people's behavior and internal. And the internal parts behavior made total sense 
back when you were being hurt. And they think they still need to do it because they think you're still in the same kind of vulnerability. So, yeah. So it has been a tough sell. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. The new year is here, and it marks a fresh start for your small business. Whether you're shifting business hours or hiring more remote employees, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so you can find the right person quickly. And to lend a helping hand, your first job post is free. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly from LinkedIn's active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Post a job with targeted screening questions to get your role in front of more qualified candidates. You can manage job posts and contact candidates on the familiar linkedin.com website where functions are streamlined into one simple screen. And now you can do all of this from your mobile device no matter where the day takes you. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to post a job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. I would say that you know many of the most important and impactful inputs that I've had in the last handful of years from a healing perspective and and furthermore not just from a healing perspective getting back to whole but even just becoming a hopefully i know this is a really generic term but like better human so not just getting to baseline but actually going beyond baseline in some ways has related to self-compassion and mm-hmm. radical acceptance by tara brock would be a very in some respects buddhist mindfulness approach to that and i, I feel like ifs is a very tactical, practical framework for actually kind of getting after it almost in a tennis match type of way. I mean, not not that it's adversarial, but with the assistance of someone else. And I'd love to explore what some of these parts are and to explore, for instance, protectors and some of these other labels just to give people an understanding of what this looks like in practice. What do you think the best way to do that is? Is it giving a conceptual overview of some type? Is it just getting into it and you and I rolling up the sleeves and seeing what happens? If I gave a brief conceptual overview, then what we tend what we do with each other would make more sense to people. So let me great. Let me do Let's that. Do so As I was exploring this with clients back in the day, I'm a systems person. I'm looking for distinctions and patterns. And the big distinction that leaped out immediately as I was doing it with more and more clients was between parts that were very young, and the culture has been called these these wonderful inner children who were vulnerable and sensitive and often were the parts of us that are the most hurt by the traumas. They, they take it the most personally, and they get the most frightened and they feel the most worthless often. And once those young, formerly happy-go-lucky, delightful, creative inner parts of us, once they get hurt that way, they have the power to overwhelm us and give us all the burdened emotions that they carry. So not knowing we're locking up 
our most juicy parts, we tend to try and get away from them and put them in inner basements or uh, abysses or caves. So I call them the exiles. And we've all done that one degree or another, even if you haven't had a lot of trauma. There are ways our culture or your family didn't accept certain parts of you, and so you had to move away from them. And we do it not realizing. We think we're just moving away from dreadful memories or sensations or emotions, but we are locking up these parts of us that are so wonderful and have so many talents when they're not locked up and when they're not stuck in the past. So when you have a lot of exiles, then the world becomes a lot more dangerous and you feel a lot more delicate. So other parts have to jump into other protective roles, some of which are designed to control the world so your exiles don't get triggered. Because if they get triggered, then it's like flames of emotion threaten to consume you. And these protectors often think you're going to die if you stay with that. So there are parts that will keep you a certain distance from people. There are parts that will control your appearance so you don't get rejected, parts that try to make you your performance perfect so you get a lot of accolades to counter the worthlessness. So all of that we call protect. Those are manager protectors because they're managing a lot. They're trying to – they're like what in family therapy we used to call parentified inner children. In a family where the parents abdicate – the kids have to become the parents. They were called parental, parental children. This happens inside of us, too. These younger parts have to kind of run our lives. And they get extreme because they, they're in over their heads. Often they become these critics. They're yelling at us just to try and get us to behave. They don't know what else to do than to yell at us. And so those are some of the common manager roles. Others are these massive caretaking parts that don't let us take care of ourselves, only let take care of everybody else. There's just a lot of common manager roles. When that doesn't work and the world breaks through those quote-unquote defenses and triggers our exiles, it's a big emergency. And so there's another set of parts who's on call almost, who immediately goes into action to take us out, to get us higher than the flames of emotion or to douse them with some substance or to distract us until they burn themselves out. So those we call firefighters because they're fighting the fire of this exiled emotion inside of you. And, and we all have some of those, and most of us have a kind of hierarchy of them. If the first one doesn't work, we go to the next one. If that doesn't work, the next one. And the top of the hierarchy is often suicide. It's a big kind of comfort to many people to know if things get bad enough, there's always that safety net, I can ex- exit strategy. But other kinds of firefighter activities include a lot of addictions. And, and for me, it's, it sounds like for you too, it's work is one of mine. Firefighter activities, eating was one of mine, it's not anymore. So, you know, those are some of the common firefighters. So most all of us walk around with some version of that system The more trauma you experienced, the more exiles you have, then the more extreme your parts often are. In addition to all of that, though, and this is actually the big discovery in IFS, as I was doing this work and I would, as a family therapist, try to have dialogues inside among these different parts like I would in a family, often I'd have to get one part to 
to kind of separate or move back or step out for a second so I could have two others talk to each other because the other was interfering. And as I started doing that process of getting parts to open more space inside and not, you know, be chattering all the time, slowed it down, it was like another person would pop out who took the lead and uh, was just immediately curious about these parts or even had a lot of compassion suddenly out of the blue and also had was calm and was confident. And so, and the parts would relate well to this person. And when I asked what part of you is that, clients would say some version of, that's not a part like these others, that's myself. So I came to call that the self with a capital S. And it turns out, and this is really totally amazing, but given all the 40 years we've been doing this and the thousands of people doing it around the world, I can safely say that that self, capital S, is in everybody, can't be damaged, and knows how to heal, and can be accessed simply by getting these parts to open space, because it seems it's just beneath the surface of them. So when I'm working with somebody, I will wait until I hear some of those C words. In addition to the four I mentioned, there's also courage, clarity, creativity, and connectedness. So I'm I'm waiting to hear when my client is in that that place before I have them work with their parts. And when, when they work with their parts from that place, they just naturally know how to heal. So if I if I may ref, just reflect on what you said for a second, I mean this is for people who have never had a psychedelic experience. If we look at the etymology of psychedelic, I mean it is mind manifesting in a <laughs> in a sense. If we want to roughly translate it to English, and it's incredible how much your description of working with IFS parts and then this self, right? This this sort of a central observer who has, as maybe a Stan Groff would put it, you know, an innate healing intelligence or something like that. How much it mirrors what some people can only achieve with drugs, meaning psychedelic drugs or plants or fungi of some type, right? It, it's it's pretty remarkable that you're able to sort of engineer and back into without any type of pharmaceutical intervention something very very similar and get to a very similar place. Uh, I, let me comment on that for a second. So, Sure. Because you mentioned Michael and Annie Mithoffer, and in phase one, when Michael was using MDMA with these mostly combat vets, but uh, PTSD clients, and he started talking excitedly about this because they're both well-trained IFS therapists, I started to feel more and more validated because for some reason, the MDMA seems to get all your protectors to relax. And so you, just by virtue of having taken the medicine, you're in self with those C words that I described earlier. Right. And he found, and he kept track of this. He, he tracked that phase one group and he found that over 70% spontaneously started doing IFS without any coaching from from him because in the protocol they they set it up where they couldn't lead the client it was all kind of you know following 
Yeah, so, non-directional, right. Exactly. So that confirmed to me that I had just stumbled onto a process that people naturally know how to do when they access enough sound, and they'll do it on their own. And that's true, too. It's become a kind of life practice where people do this on a daily basis often. So how, how can we demonstrate this for folks? Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little nervous about uh, <laughs> so open, opening the kimono on the podcast, but uh, it seems to be setting, I seem to be setting a, a trend in doing that with recent episodes, so I might as well just you know, go for it and for a penny and for a pound. So what's, what's a good way to, for you and I to have a chat to try to illustrate some of these things? Uh, well, if there is a part of you you'd like to get to know better or, or change your relationship with, or if there's something still getting in your way from, you mentioned that there was a very angry part of you that came up and had all these, what in retrospect seemed like minor quibbles, but we could go there. It's, it's really up to you, whatever you want to explore. Well, I, you know, I would say when I've looked at the anger and, and tried to work with it, and it's quite subdued, not exiled or not disavowed, but it's, it's not as, as high volume as it used to be, even a few years ago. But I do think that the anger is very often a byproduct or a symptom of fear. Uh-huh. And so the fear, I think, could be worth digging into. And something that I've noticed as I have successfully contended with and healed from depression, that anxiety has become more pronounced. And this sort of vague sense of unease that something bad can and will happen, that type of anxiety that is that I, I then create narratives around because I'll say, uh, I'll sort of have this wave of anxiety and then explain it in all sorts of ways that may may not be accurate. But that has become something that I've noticed more and more as depression has become less and less of a an ongoing battle for me in the last five or six years. Okay, and uh, I'd love to kind of explore that because I've tried many things to move from a place of uh, anxiety and fear to a place of trust and faith. And God damn, is it hard? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, maybe I'm just exposed to too many ugly aspects of the world where I get to see really bad behavior and sort of Lord of the Flies type dynamics quite a bit. But that is something I wouldn't mind digging into right absolutely yeah yeah happy to help you with that uh and you know that trust in the world is safe is is tough to get through willpower so we'll try it we'll try it this other way so are you ready Uh, i'm as i'm as ready as i'm gonna be yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so the way we start is have you focus on that anxiety and find it in your body or around your body. Okay. And as you notice it there, where do you find it, by the way? Uh, right now, as I'm thinking about it, I feel it in the throat. And that's quite common, like a constriction in the throat. Okay. 
Uh, I also will feel it basically right over the heart, like a constriction on the left side of my chest. Okay. But so, right now I'm feeling it mostly in the throat. All right. So let's start there. So as you notice it there in your throat, tell me how you feel toward that part of you that's so anxious. Well, if I'm being honest, I suppose I want it to go away. I want it to uh, let go so that I can feel more, certainly less constriction physically, right, in the throat. It's not pleasant. It doesn't feel good to me. Right. Uh, I, I would say there's anger towards that fearful part also because uh -huh. objectively I can look at my life and my surroundings and everything's fucking great. I mean, <laughs> <we're> <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's, so I get, uh, I, I get very upset at that part. Which I can understand. It does get in your way. And, and, uh, but we're going to ask the one who's angry at it and the one who wants it to go away. Both of those parts, we're going to ask to give us a little space to get to know it just for a few minutes and actually maybe try to help it in a different way rather than try okay. and make it go away. So just see if those parts would be willing to relax in there so you could open your, open your mind to it a little bit. So the, just for clarity, the angry part and the anxious part, fearful part, I'm asking both of those to kind of stand down for a few minutes. No, 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 no. We want the anxious part to stick around. We want okay, the, one, the one who doesn't like the angry, anxious part to step back and the got one it. who okay. wants to wants to get rid of it. So just see if you can right. open your mind to the anxious one. All right. So how do you feel toward it now? I uh, feel more empathetic yeah I mean, it just seems like a scared child where there, there you go so mm -hmm. let it know you have some empathy for it and you care about it you want to get to know it better and just ask what it wants you to know and don't think of the answer tim just wait for something to come from that from your throat yeah it already came as soon as you prompted it was i don't know what to do yeah. That was that was the that's what came to mind. And how do you feel toward it now as you get how sort of confused it feels? Yeah, I feel a lot of compassion for it. So let it know. Let it know you get it's it's confused and scared. And just see if there's more it wants you to get about it's that that feeling of I don't know what to do. Just see if there's more that comes. Yeah, I don't want to mess things up. Like I'm, uh -huh. like I'm, I'm not trying to mess things up. Something uh -huh. along those lines. Yeah. Okay. And let it know you. You just want to keep getting to know it. Why does it worry so much about messing things up? Whatever it wants you to know about all that. Well, it seems like. Um... It just seems like kind of a confused, scared child. There, and I guess what it's trying to communicate is that it's not intentionally trying to f mess up 
my life. <laughs> it is just unsure of how to sort of quell that right. fear. Yeah. Uh-huh. And do you see this child in there or you just sense him? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, this is kind of a, uh, you know, an unusual practice in visualization. So I'm, I'm highly visual. So for me right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking out a window and I kind of feel, at least I've been envisioning this part, this scared part to my left, like the kind of left peripheral visual field. Uh And uh, for whatever reason, it's not a child. Like in my mind, it's actually like an adult version of myself that just has the the fear and the wide-eyed look and the uh, scattered nature of a fearful child. Okay. And as you see him there from in your periphery, how close would you say you are to him in terms of feet away? About like eight to 10 feet. Okay. And is it possible to get closer to him and turn more toward him? Yep, it's possible. So how close can you get now? Well, since I'm sitting in front of a mic, I'm kind of inviting him over. Okay, good. <laughs> otherwise, it's going to make this podcast very difficult. So, so I invited him to have a seat at the table. So we are about uh, four, four and a half feet away now. We're, we're sitting more or less directly across the table from each other. Okay, good. And, and once again, just let him know that these you get these other parts have been very hard on him but they're not around right now and that you actually care about him and just see how he reacts yeah seems to be sort of softening and relaxing okay in my good. mind's eye yeah okay and just again ask if there's anything more he wants to know about his anxiety and confusion Nothing, nothing coming to mind immediately. He's just sort of sitting more relaxed Good. at the table. Ask him this question then. Does he protect other parts of you? Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, I guess I was going to say, I I don't know if I'm making this up or not, but I guess one could make the argument that I'm, (laughs) you know, one could make the argument I'm making none of it up or making all of it up, but so I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the commentary, but, uh, yeah, the part of me that was abused, like the part of me that, uh, that was sort of constantly at risk of some unpredictable, abuse as a little kid uh and i mean it wasn't limited to the two to four uh sort of sexual abuse there was there was a lot of other i was bullied really really severely up until about sixth grade it's very very small kid so it's there's a lot of unpredictability in my life uh kind of start to finish as as a kid so protecting uh that part of me that was always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop Okay, so this is a kind of choice point for you, Tim, because 
I'm happy to go to that one, but that would be more vulnerable and more exposing. So uh, it's it's your call, and I don't you know I don't want to yeah. you to feel any pressure to do it. Well, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into specifics of like the sexual abuse or anything like that. No, you you won't like, have to disclose anything yeah. about what you see. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's try it. Let's give let's give it a go. Well, before we do, just check around inside and see if there is any fear about doing it. I want to be sure we're doing it with full permission. I mean, there's a little bit of trepidation, but uh, I know I can always cut. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, 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 I am the master of the audio, so right. I feel I feel okay with uh, with that since we're not we're not live casting this. All right. So then, go ahead and focus on that abused part of you, and find mm-hmm. him find him in your body, around your body. Okay. Where do you find them? You know, I'm also, I'm still feeling, I mean, the dominant uh, constriction is in the throat. And, you know, I, I also find myself wondering if this frightened part of me is one and the same with the abused, but I, I, I don't want to. Well, you, you can. You get the answer. Start. No, you'll you'll get the answer if you just ask. Ask if that's the case, and just wait for the answer. <sighs> yeah, I think it is the same. I okay, think it is good. the same. All right. All right. And and you're still across the table from him. Yep, still across the table. And ask if he trusts now that you care about him. Yeah, he does. All right. Then if he's up for it and ready, then tell him to show you and let you feel and sense and see whatever he needs you to about how bad it all was. And again, don't think, Tim. Just wait and see what comes to you. And you don't have to disclose any of it, but you can disclose what feels okay. Yeah, it's just a it's just a horrible stream of images and scenes of like abuse and violence and a fearful little kid who Good. was yeah. just constantly hypervigilant because of that. And are you okay watching all that? I mean, I don't enjoy watching it, <laughs> but I can I feel like I can handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let him know you're okay so far. That you yeah. really you really want to get how bad it was for him as much as he wants you to. So Okay. Just tell him you're ready. And just see if there's more. Yeah, there's more. Um yeah, nothing shockingly new, but just painting a fuller picture of uh you know, pretty scared, pretty sad childhood for a, a, a lot of the time. Not always, but for a lot of the time. Yeah, so it's really good that you're getting how bad it was and getting more of the either the details or the emotions. And just tell him to keep going if he needs to. 
We're going to stay with him until he feels like you really get it now. Yeah, I feel it petering out a bit. I mean, I got a lot, so I, I, I feel like I've received what has been sent. But just ask him directly and see if he mm-hmm. see if he agrees this is what he wanted you to get. Yeah, it would be so. Okay. All right, Tim. So now I want you to go to that boy in that time period, some point in that time period, and be mm-hmm. with him in the way he needed somebody. Mm-hmm. And just tell me when you're in there with him. Yep, I'm there. And how are you being with him? Oh, well, he's actually sitting in a chair. <laughs> the Another chair. It's like the board of directors here. I'm uh-huh. sitting, at a, sitting in another chair. Uh, yeah, just a few feet across from me. Okay. And but but you're in that time period with him. Is that true? I I can be. Yeah. If yeah. you want me to sort of transport myself back to that time period, I can do that too. That that is what I want. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Do, Got it. And tell me when you're back there with him. Okay, I'm there. And how are you being with him back there? I'm sitting on the floor. He's playing with uh, blocks on mm-hmm. the floor, and I'm just sitting there being with him in the living room. And how is it for him to have you there? Can you tell? I think it's comforting to have sort of a non-threatening, I suppose in some ways, protective male Yeah. Uh, there. Mm-hmm. So he does seem to acknowledge you're there and feels comforted. Yeah, feels yeah comfortable. Mm-hmm. All right, then ask him what he wants you to do for him back there before we take him out to a good place. There's something he wants you to do, some some person he wants you to deal with, whatever he wants. Yeah, this is where we get into <laughs> territory that might not make it onto the live version here. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, he would like me to say a few things to some some people, I would say, for sure. I, I don't know if I'll get into the specifics, uh, but I can think about the specifics, certainly. Yeah, you don't have to disclose what you say. It's just for you to do for him. So mm-hmm. while, he, while he watches, go ahead and say those things to those people. Okay, done. And ask him what that was like for him to watch you do that for him. Uh, well, you know, he, he, he has a sort of my hero type look on his face. That's great. Right? Yeah. To, to have somebody stand up for him in, in that way. That's right. So tell him you're going to be doing that for him from now on. And see if he'd like to leave that time and place with you and come to a safe, comfortable place now. 
Okay. Yes. Okay. So take him wherever he'd like to go. It could be the present, could be a fantasy place, whatever he'd like. All right. Where do you have him? Took him to this farm property that I own. Lots of Great. trails and woods and room to room to play and roam. Beautiful. All right. And tell him he can stay there. He never has to go back to that time. And you're going to take care of him. And given that, ask him if you'd like to unload the feelings and beliefs you got back there from those times. Uh, answers yes. And ask him where he carries all that in his body or on his body. Hmm. First thing that came to mind, I don't know why, is the traps, like the trapezius, kind of between uh -huh. the neck and the shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. And ask what he'd like to give it all up to. Light, water, fire, wind, earth, anything else. What he would like to give it up to, like an element? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be. It could be anything else. Hmm. I think, I'll, I think I'd... Could you give me, again, some examples? Just because yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure how, how to answer that. Yeah, so light or water or fire, wind, earth, anything else. And let him light. just check with him. Let's let's have him pick. Uh, okay, well, revision fire. Fire, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim. So set up a fire for him, and tell him to take all that out of the, the place in his body, and to let the fire take care of it. Just put it in the fire until it's all gone. Done. Good. How does he feel now without it? Uh, looks a lot happier. Looks ready, ready to jump up and down. That's great. And before he does that, just if he wants to, he can invite into his body qualities that he'd like to have, and you can just see what comes into him now. Yeah, confidence. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's the first one. Okay. Yeah. That might be all he wants. So he seems good? Seems good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's bring in this original guy, the anxious adult guy. Yep. Have, have him see how this boy's doing now and just see how he reacts. Yeah, just deep. Deep exhales, kind of sighing exhales of relaxation. Great. That's great. And you can see if there's anything he'd like to put in the fire, too. Just ask him. Yeah. Okay. So he did? 
Yeah, let me just make sure that I envision that really clearly. Give me one more okay. sec. Sure. Yep. Done. Just just to, to add some color for people who are listening along. I mean, hopefully people can listen to this and kind of take themselves through it as well, uh, possibly. But it's so fucking bizarre how these things sometimes work. I mean, and it's uh, also kind of magical in, in a sense. I mean, because he's he took fear out of his abdomen and put uh -huh. it into the fire, but was not premeditated. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. So, no, it, but who cares? Who cares? Yeah. I mean, I well, mean, it's that's good enough. Well, what you're getting is that this is a real other world. It's not like you imagine it. So, yeah. Uh, so, okay, how does he seem now? Yeah, much, much more at ease. Good, and uh, yeah. Uh, does that feel complete for now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I'd love, uh, if you mean by complete, we can, we, we would then do sort of a post-game analysis and you can uh -huh, sure. add, add on to that. Yes, that feels complete for now. So we can... Uh, yeah, so focus back outside. Mm -hmm. And before we stop, just notice your throat and see how it feels now. <sighs> yes, it's, it's like if it was at an eight volume before, it's at like a two, two or less right. volume now. That's great. Okay. Yeah, we can do our post game. So maybe let's start with you and what it was like. I mean, this is, I'm going to sound like a one trick pony here. So you'll have to forgive me and I'll, I'll beg forgiveness from uh, my audience also, but it feels very psychedelic. I mean, it really, it is very reminiscent of the non-pathological therapeutic splitting of the psyche, or maybe it's just the recognizing of yeah. separate parts of the psyche, better put, right. that uh, I mean, it puts you in a very non-ordinary state, or at least uh, that was my experience. Very much, yeah. And it's the same state that shamans take people into. It's, it's a, real yeah. other, a real other world. And uh, I stumbled onto this way of accessing it and operating it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, in terms of my post game, um, we could do all that because you had access very quickly to a lot of self with a capital S. And mm -hmm. I gauged that. I gauged that by when I asked you initially how you felt toward the guy in your throat, and you said. You didn't like them, and you wanted to get rid of them. And then I had those parts step back, and I asked, now how do you feel toward them? Immediately you had empathy. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And so that's what we find over and over. When these other parts step back, you enter that empathic, compassionate leader place. And once we got you in that place, I knew we would be able to do a lot. Because mm. you you just started to do it, I I led you to some degree, but you your parts responded really well to you as this leader that they didn't really know that well, and so yeah, then we could get to know the anxious man, 
And so he turned out to be a manager in that classification I gave earlier. He was trying to keep you from taking risks, probably, and sort of manage your life through anxiety. And, mm -hmm. and then there was a point where I had you ask him if he protected somebody else. Remember that? I do. And then he lets you know he protected this exiled boy who was still stuck back in those traumas, those scenes of abuse and, and mm -hmm. bullying. And so uh, the way we heal those parts is what you did, which was to become a compassionate witness to the boy so he feels like finally you really get everything about how bad it was. And then to actually go to him in that time period and do a redo in the sense of being with him and, and talking to the people he, he needed you to talk to. And, and for him, you know, people say you can't change the past. For these parts in this inner world, that literally changes their experience of what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and so then we could take him out to a safe place on your farm, and at which point these exiles generally, if they trust they can stay there and you're going to take care of them, are willing to give up the emotions and beliefs they've been carrying, even though, I don't know how old you are, but it's, it sounds like it's maybe been 30 years or so. Yeah, it's been a, been a long time. Yeah, I'm 40, 43. I forget how old I am. That's probably a sign <laughs> of getting older. Right. <laughs> well, wait till, uh, wait till you're my age, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what we did. And then once once we unburdened, is my language for letting all that go, he, he gave up to fire. And we bring in the qualities of, of confidence. Then we have the protector come in and see he doesn't have to protect this boy anymore. And he, as you can see, felt much more relaxed and we could help him unburden too. So that was actually quite a piece of work. And again, the reason we could do so much is because you had so much access to self pretty quickly. For many other people, it takes a long time to get those other parts to step back and not interfere. Yeah. Parts work is just, it's, it, I, you would, you would think that at this point in my life, having been exposed to parts work in different ways, in different, very different contexts also, in some cases enhanced and in some cases not, that it would just be another day at the office. But I am always, when I experience it firsthand, so impressed by how powerful parts work is and can be. And I would love to hear you speak to how this applies to people who might suffer from suicidal ideation. And I'm referring to another editorial piece. And there's a quote here that I'm going to read from one such patient or client who had suicidal ideation. And here's the quote. For me, the most amazing thing was learning about a, about a part of me that was suicidal and knowing that that was just a single part of me. It wasn't my entire being. That changed my world. I try to share that with a lot of people because I know a lot of people who get very depressed and sometimes feel suicidal. If you can step back from that feeling and realize that it's just a part of you that's trying to take away your pain and suffering, then you can move through it and find a different way to deal with it to help that part. Could you expand on this or speak sure. to it, give examples, however, whatever makes sense in terms of fleshing this out? Because speaking as someone who's 
came very close to taking his own life. This is a, a very, very, <laughs> very big lens swap for someone who is suicidal or suffering from suicidal ideation. So it really does help to know that all these things aren't you. They're parts of you that are often are just trying to protect. So for me, there aren't alcoholics. There aren't, you know, I'm, I'm against all these monolithic labels because, yes, you've got a part that tries to protect you by getting you drunk all the time, but it's just a part of you. And it's one of your firefighters. And then most people don't realize that if they took away your drinking, suicide is the next one on the list, the next one on the ladder. And that would be jumping in if not for the drinking. So then you got to honor the drinking part for keeping you alive. And I'll go to suicide. So I've worked many, many years with highly suicidal clients. And they, as you can imagine, as you probably were, were terrified of, of that part of them. And like you said, they were so blended with it, they didn't even, they thought it was who they were. So yes, that first step of seeing it as just a part like you just did with the anxiety. Not only that, but if you began to get to know it, I can tell you the common dialogue we have. So I would say to you, Tim, ask that part why it wants to kill you or what's it afraid would happen if it didn't kill you. Do you want to uh, give a spontaneous answer to that? Oh, I wasn't. I, I didn't have my uh, my shoes on ready to with for the starting gun. Could you say that one more time, and then yeah, I'll. That's <laughs> uh, okay. No, I'll give you the common answers. So, I, I would have you ask the part why it wants to kill you. What's afraid would happen if it didn't kill you? Generally, yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I just want it to stop. Like there's a yeah. loop that I yeah. can't turn off. It's just that's a thought right. loop of hatred or self loathing or whatever right. it might be. And then there's another part that knows life is pretty good. And it's like, well, shit, if this is never going to stop, what's the fucking point? I just want it to stop. That's, totally. That would be the That's answer. Right. And so if we were doing the work, I would say, ask this part, if we could get that loop to, to stop in a different way without having to kill you, would it still want to kill you? And most of these parts say no. No. Yeah. <laughs> but the I answer didn't, would be no. Uh, yeah. It would be no, but I don't think you can do that, or I wouldn't try to kill him, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'd say, if you give me a chance, I can prove that we can. I guarantee it. So I'm what I call a hope merchant. I'm selling hope to hopeless systems. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't know we could follow through and actually stop that loop. So mm. that's generally how we work with suicide. And, uh, and once these suicidal parts trust that there is this alternative they know they're going down with the ship they don't want to die so if, they, if there is an alternative they'll go for it and do you stop the loop just just to not leave that cliffhanger of a <laughs> uh, uh, of, of a of a promise if if you say that to a client who's suffering from suicidal ideation is the delivery mechanism doing what we just did in some fashion, getting them to the point where they are speaking from the place of the self, where they can excuse and re-invite different parts, including the part with the loop. Is that how you shepherd yeah. them to that point? Yeah. yeah, it's accessing self and then finding the parts that are creating the loop and then doing what we did with your parts, you know, a different version of it, because they would be different parts. 
and mm-hmm. and then and then just like as you found they this one doesn't have to keep you so anxious now they wouldn't have to keep doing that loop and then the suicidal part would see that and would say oh, okay i guess i i was wrong you could pull this off so yeah be like that there are circumstances where the external world is so dreadful for somebody that you can't just do this inside you have to actually i'm still a family therapist so i'm going to still do what I can to change that external context, too. So I didn't want to be facile and say, all you got to do is this healing inside and everything will be fine. Yeah, sometimes you got to take the rock out of your shoe and not just change how you relate to the rock. Right? Her, I mean, there's, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the quote I was going to read is from Carl Rogers. And I know you are familiar with this quote. And it is, quote, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change, end quote. Is there anything you would like to like to say after my mention of that? Is there? Well, that, you know, that's sort of the, the foundation of this work is not just accepting. You know, you could get to a place of acceptance of that anxiety guy, and that would help him not feel beat up by those other parts. You with me so far? Yes. But that wouldn't necessarily help him unburden. You know what I'm saying? It wouldn't yes. necessarily help him actually transform. So this is a step beyond what a lot of maybe spiritual traditions do, which would be to get you mindfully accepting of your parts, radical acceptance. You know, that that's all a, a great mm-hmm. it's a great first step. But then, rather than having yourself be a passive witness, accepting witness, you became, with your parts, an active inner parent, an active leader, an active, I'm going to help you. So mm-hmm. that, that's one of the big differences with IFS. Let me return to, to psychedelics for a moment and the psychedelic experience. It's perhaps a, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a common misconception because I do try to be the voice of restraint and caution (laughs) as often as possible. But just for the sake of making the point I want to make, I'll say it it could be a misconception that I want or think all people should have psychedelic experiences with strong compounds, (laughs) whether it be, you know, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, ayahuasca, or otherwise. And that's just patently not true because it's not suitable for all people in all circumstances. It just simply is not. And there are risks involved. So I'm fascinated by the prospect. I mean, it sounds like for you a reality that this is an alternate or complementary way of accessing, in some respects, the same space uh, and the same workspace. Have you also found or heard anecdotally that IFS or working with IFS has helped prepare people to be more adept or, I hesitate to use the word productive, but to be more prepared for psychedelic experiences with compounds? Yes. And uh, we're doing, ultimately, we're going to do some training. But, uh, you know, I like Michael and Annie's training, uh, but I, I think it could be, there could be more IFS in there to to use more IFS in those prep sessions and then after in the aftermath uh, to actually help people understand what they they experienced and to follow up to help them keep going. So yeah, I'm hoping I've been working at it 
that RFS can be kind of the map to that territory in general. And hmm. so that, uh, yes, in addition to the prep sessions where you would first check the parts that might be scared to do it or, uh, you know, the kinds of parts that might come up during the time and just help the person get to know those a little bit in advance and get permission to do the, the psychedelic experience. And then mm-hmm. during it, as these parts come up, even scary ones, you know, there is such a thing as post-psychedelic trauma uh, syndrome where, yeah. where people... Yeah, please speak to that. This is important. Yep. People do have really bad experiences. I've worked with people who were severely traumatized and, you know, and it's set in motion a kind of psychotic process. So these are delicate ecologies we're entering and we need a very ecologically sensitive map. And so if that were to happen either during the psychedelic experience or as a kind of backlash afterwards for the, the guide to know what that is and not panic themselves and to be able to, to work with the part that, that has uh, come out in a soothing way, which also involves the self-energy of the guide so that IFS can also be used to help uh, the sitters work with themselves and get their parts to open space for their self to be very present, uh, which really makes a huge difference in the experience of the person doing it. Yeah. Absolutely. And to just reiterate something you said, I mean, there the stories that are most commonly shared related to psychedelics are suffer from a survivorship bias. Right. So uh in the sense that just like if you pick up Barron's or one of these investment magazines or newspapers, the only mutual funds that are still advertising are the ones that survived and it can create a very distorted picture of just how safe these things might be. And that's true also with drugs where like the people who died of heroin overdoses aren't available for interview. So you don't get to hear from them. Psychedelics, generally speaking, physiologically not being any anywhere close, at least if we're talking about the classic psychedelics like LSD or psilocybin, physiologically, their LD50 is going to be nowhere close to something like an opiate. But the point being that if you are a clinician as you are, you get to see the whole spectrum of post-psychedelic experiences. And that includes people who have psychotic breaks or people who suffer from what some scientist friends of mine have called ontological shock, where they just they they aren't completely unraveled, but they really don't know what is real anymore. Or, given or the who powerful, they are. Right. Yeah or who they are. And you also have people, I'm a case study in this, who go into an experience thinking they have no trauma or a certain level of lowercase t trauma, and then under the influence of these compounds, have the opening of the floodgates where they suddenly realize that there's a lot more in Pandora's box. And once that is uncorked and they return to ordinary reality, don't know how to metabolize that or work with it or contend with it, which can lead to all sorts of problems. And 
I just want to make it really clear that these are these are very powerful experiences that I think require the same type of due diligence and forethought as going into neurosurgery mm-hmm. <laughs> or, yeah. uh, or, proce- or a, a process like that. And you wouldn't look for your neurosurgeon on Craigslist or <laughs> encourage them to buy their tools through the dark web. So right. in a, similarly, how can one make, if they can, IFS or, or this type of work a daily practice? Is it a daily practice? Or is it something that you just go for the gusto with every once in a while in a really intense therapeutic session? How do you think about how do you think about that? Yeah, one of the things I like about it most is that it it easily translates into a daily practice. So as I thought about <laughs> as I thought about this interview. And also, we had, the listeners don't know, but we had some technical snafus in the beginning, and I, I could feel my panic parts coming up, and and uh, you know I knew you were waiting, and and so inside I'm saying I get it, I get you, you're scared, this isn't going to happen, but just trust me, just relax, just step back, I can handle this. Remember, it always goes better when I when I'm in the lead. Just let me handle this. And during that, even that time when they were so panicked, I would just feel this parting of the seas and, and myself would come back. I'd have access to it again and my confidence is back and my, all those C words. And so I do that on a daily basis. If I'm going to face something scary, I'll do a little prep session with my parts, a little pep talk about, okay, I know you guys, this will be triggering, but just let me handle it. And then at, if they get triggered during a session or during a time during the week and I can't unblend, I can't separate from them, then I bookmark that and I call my therapist and I do a piece of work around it like the piece of work we just did. And so then I, I do a lot of unburdening in the session, but then I follow up after the session. So my homework for you is to check on that boy and that that adult part of you every day for about a month and just make sure they're still doing okay and treat it, you know, very seriously. Like it's not your imagination. It's actually real. Even if you don't believe it, treat it that way and this will stick. Yeah. So when I'm working with clients and we've done a lot of work and at the end, they'll say some version of you're a pretty good therapist, but I healed myself. And that's really what we're shooting for. <laughs> I like that. Uh, how do you suggest people build in this check-in? I would imagine this is common homework, where they are checking in on these parts. When do they do it? How long do they do it for? When they first get up, when they're eating breakfast? What does a check-in, or what might a good check-in look like? Yeah, it just it's very variable. Uh, different clients do it differently. There are some who will do a sit for an hour every day and just really keep it going. And they actually get to where they can do unburdenings on their own. And the first 20 minutes of our session, they're just telling me all the stuff they did at home. And then I, okay, let's go in and do some more. And then there are people who are more like me who, you know, I'll remember, especially if I write it down, a part that I've been working with and needs my attention. And like I said, when I get up in the morning, I'll just lay in bed and, 
and check on it and see how it is. And but I I can't do a whole lot more than that for some reason. I've got parts that interfere on my own. So I do a lot of the big healing work with somebody else, and then I I do the maintenance work on my own every day. So it it just varies mm-hmm. from person to person. But I can do that. Notice a part's getting triggered and not think it's me, know it's a part, and separate from it in the moment is the process we've been talking about a lot. Let's talk about adding in some some additional variables. Uh, so you've said that often when couples are fighting, they're in a protector war, if I'm getting the reference right. Can you expand on that? What does that mean? What, is it, yeah, what does it mean, and then how, do you, how might you re- approach resolving it? If, if there are couples listening who are in quarantine who might not have access to a therapist. Yeah. So often I give my wife and I as an example, but she got tired of me doing that. So I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, that's understand, understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm working with couples, most of the time it is these protectors who have taken over each of them and are doing the talking. So it's... Maybe the man's angry part, well, I don't want to be gendered about this. It's, it's one partner's angry part. It's, yeah, it's okay. I mean, you, you could give the hypothetical heteronormative, <laughs> <laughs> just to make it easy uh, for just the example. Of course, people chill out. This can apply to any couple, but any couple. Let's, let's just, yeah, let's just go with, all right. So in this case, we have a man and a woman. The man has the angry part. Yeah. So he's really angry about something his wife said, and she's in this big defensive part and is just trying to justify it and, and so on. And, and it's just these two parts interacting in a nasty way a lot of the time. And unbeknownst to each of them, or maybe even known to each of them, those protectors are triggering the exiles of the other person each time they say something. They're hurting these, these wounded children inside. And the more those exiles get hurt, then the more the extreme the protectors become. And that's the loop that most couples are in. There's a, I believe it's an Indian saying that goes something like, when the water buffalo battle in the marsh, it's the frogs who suffer. So when these protectors go to war, both parties often don't even know the damage they're doing to the other person at all, because all they see is the protective part. But that damage really can erode the relationship ultimately. So when we're working with such a couple, the first move is to do what we call a U-turn in their focus. That means get each of them to stop, focus inside, noticing the parts that are doing the talking, get to know them a little bit, come back out when they can speak for them rather than from them. So if, if you and I got into it, Tim, I might say, so Tim, it, it really, really, I just can't stand that you just said that. Mm-hmm. So that would be a protector speaking, speaking, period. And if our therapist said, okay, Dick, just go inside, listen to that angry part who just spoke, listen to what it protects, and come back when you can speak from this open-hearted place 
for both of those parts. And I might say some version of, okay, I did that, and I noticed this angry one, and it really wanted me to ream you out. And then I asked what it was protecting, and it was this, this boy who would hear something very similar from my father when he would yell at me. And this angry guy said, I'm never going to let that happen again. No one can talk to me like that. And so that's what was happening for me when I was saying that to you. So you see the difference? Mm -hmm. I do. And once you've had, let's just say, both people in the couple, right? So in our previous example, like the man and the woman, they they do the U-turn. They're both able to come back. Does that, is is like a problem half defined, half solved in this case? Is, are you kind of halfway there? Or, or is there a next step once each person can say, this part was protecting this part, and I'm able to kind of speak from this calmer observer self about these two now? And you get the man and the woman back in the room. What happens from that point forward? Yeah, there are several next steps. So one side of IFS is having them interact with each other from self, speaking for their parts, sort of in the way I just described. But my job then becomes simply being the parts detector. So as they talk to each other, I'll say, time out. You're talking from these parts. I want you both to go inside. Come back when you can be more in self when you speak. And then when they can and they stay in self, just hold them in that space as they talk about their issues. And what I find is just that, just being able to have a self-to-self conversation with somebody, you do start to heal on your own, basically. Just like self can do that in the inner world, self can do that in the outer world. Now, as we do that, there may be parts that aren't willing to step back and, you know, that are still quite burdened. And so the other thing I'll do is I would do a piece of work with you while your partner witnessed that work. So if, let's say, that anxious part was really getting in the way in your relationship, and your partner watched me do that and saw the backstory to why this part's so anxious, what's your partner going to feel? Empathy. Empathy, yeah. So rather than being critical of you for being so scared or whatever it was, now they have empathy for this part of you, and they want to encourage you to keep working with it and healing it. So that's a major intervention in a, in a relationship as well. And so I'll have people work with the parts that are getting in the way of the relationship the most while their partner watches. So that's a whole other side of IFS. Let's talk to another example of being a merchant of hope, as you put it, <laughs> or a hope merchant. Trailheads. Uh, I want to talk about trailheads in an interview. I believe it was an interview. It might have been a blog post. It is an interview on 1440.org. Here's the paragraph I want to unpack. Quote, if I'm working with a client who is a former alcoholic and they come in and tell me sheepishly they went off the wagon this week, I say, that's great because this is a trailhead. And if we follow the trail, it will lead us right to the part we need to heal that we haven't got to yet. Can you please elaborate on trailheads yeah as you can imagine that's a bit of a radical statement in this field but um that's <laughs> yes that is my experience that these whatever extreme belief emotion sensation 
you know, you, you mentioned on your farm, there are a lot of trails and those trails have trailheads where you start. And if you start at the trailhead and then follow the trail, you'll come to some lake that's beautiful or something like that. If we take whatever, like in your case, it was this anxiety that you felt as the trailhead that led us to this adult part that was protecting the exile. So any kind of symptom becomes that, becomes a trailhead that'll take us to a pot of gold, really. And uh, I mean, that, that's also reminiscent to me in some respects of Gabor Mate and Ask Not Why the Addiction, but Why the Pain. And I, I quote, uh, I use that line all the time. I, and I love, oh, no, no kidding. Yeah. And he and I are good friends and uh, like a mutual admiration thing. Yeah. He's a fascinating guy. <laughs> he's he is indeed. Fascinating, fascinating guy. For people who want to, further explore IFS or get to a better understanding of IFS, perhaps even find a therapist who is knowledgeable with IFS, what are some of the resources, tools that you would suggest people start with? And let's assume for the sake of argument that, or let's say simplicity really, that these are, are lay people, not practitioners, not therapists. Yeah. So uh, our website is ifs-institute.com, and on it, there's a store, and there are lots of books for the public. I've written two of them. One's called An Introduction to IFS, and the other is You're the One You've Been Waiting For, which is more about relationships. And there are lots of videos, and uh, there are books for kids, and there is a book called Self-Therapy that was written by a guy named Jay Early that does sort of walk people through the process. I'm a little anxious about that because he tells people to go to their exiles on their own, which I have concerns about. But that is also something some people use successfully. I did an um, audio course on Sounds True called Greater Than the Sum of the Parts that contains a lot of exercises that people like a lot. So I'd recommend that. And there are more technical books for therapists that lay people seem to get a lot out of too sometimes. What are those books? Well, the sort of Bible for therapists is called, oddly enough, Internal Family Systems Therapy, second edition, which came out just last year. And there's a, a manual we did for an organization called PESI that's kind of step-by-step, step, and Frank Anderson is the author of that. For a layperson who really wants to get sort of a brass tacks grasp of how they might use IFS in their own lives, would the audio course you suggested with the exercises be... Totally. A good place to start. It can be overwhelming in a paradox of choice sense to have so many books available and not to know where to start. So to get people to step one, if we were to recommend, that audio course would be a good place to start? Very much, yeah. And, and those exercises, I'm pretty careful about exiles, so they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're quite safe, I think. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. Well, I will link to that. And everything that we've discussed, 
in the show notes for people. So that will be available all in one place at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Well, Richard, this has been, as as hoped, incredibly fascinating for me. I'm glad that we were also able to do a a live live demo of what it looks like in the wild, in a sense. Is there anything else that you would like to share, suggest to my audience, ask of my audience before we wrap up? You know, just uh, this is a very different paradigm for understanding human nature. And uh, it changes a lot <laughs> if, if you really get it and buy into it. And, you know, I, I told the story of in the early 80s uh, when I finally got that self was in everybody. I had this vision of possibility, like, this could change everything. I hope the guy comes along who can take it where it's supposed to go because I'm just a little kid. I'm still waiting for that guy, and I'm still <laughs> trying to take it where it's supposed to go. It feels like it's got an energy of its own, and because mm. it would change a lot to know that this self is who everybody really is, and that these parts aren't even what you think they are, that they're actually very valuable qualities that who've been distorted by trauma and can transform this quickly. All of that make a huge difference in, in everyday life for most people. And also, you know, we're working with uh, high-level mediators and so on just to try and bring more peace. It's an incredible paradigm and set of tools that I will say was the first framework for talk therapy that I saw in living color via video initially that really, really caught my attention, where I was like, Holy shit. Okay. These these before and afters are really incredible. And it would have been for someone who hasn't seen these types of transformations almost impossible to anticipate that you would get these outcomes in such a relatively short period of time, given the starting points involved and the levels of trauma. It's really grabbed my attention, which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I appreciate you very much for taking the time and making the time to have a conversation. Well, I'm very honored and moved, actually, by the depth at which you get this and, and for your support. And so I've loved our conversation. I really have. Having listened to you a lot, I kind of knew I would, but you know, I still had these anxious parts. So it's just been... Uh, Moving is the best word for it for me. Well, I, I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the world. Hopefully, we'll get to meet in person at some point in the not-too-distant post-COVID, post-COVID. <laughs> world. <laughs> and uh, for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. You can find the show notes, links to everything that we discussed, including the audio course that we mentioned towards the end at tim.blog forward slash podcast. You can just search IFS and everything will pop right up. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up. 
in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out. And just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with, that's the basis, but Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. This podcast episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Sleep is super important to me. In the last few years, I've come to conclude it is the end-all, be-all, that all good things, good mood, good performance, good everything seem to stem from good sleep. So I've tried a lot to optimize it. I've tried pills and potions, all sorts of different mattresses, you name it. And for the last few years, I've been sleeping on a Helix Midnight Luxe mattress. I also have one in the guest bedroom, and feedback from friends has always been fantastic. It's something that they comment on. Helix Sleep has a quiz, takes about two minutes to complete, that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. With Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and every body. That is your body, also your taste. So let's say you sleep on your side and like a super soft bed. No problem. Or if you're a back sleeper who likes a mattress that's as firm as a rock, they've got a mattress for you too. Helix was selected as the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ Magazine, Wired, Apartment Therapy, and many others. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up from you if you don't love it. And now, my dear listeners, Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash Tim. These are not cheap pillows either, so getting two for free is an upgraded deal. So that's up to $200 off and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash Tim. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim for up to $200 off. So 
Check it out one more time. Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Tim. <laughs>